0: Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do. If you can open with me to Daniel chapter 3, Daniel 3. All the verses will also be on the screen today. But welcome to week 9 of a series that we are calling Jesus in the Old Testament. We are walking through the Old Testament and looking at pictures of Jesus on full display. And after today, we have four more Sundays left um, in this series. And this morning, we come to probably One of the most famous and recognizable stories in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fiery furnace. If you were raised in church like me, you think about the flannel board and um, all the the pictures that were there and the the nice little fire that was there and them walking through it. But what we come to, to see and what we already know is that these three men were men of conviction. They were men of resolve. When you hear the word resolve, just think about what comes to your mind. Maybe an Olympic athlete to think about the resolve of getting to that place, the the work, the effort to get them there. Maybe you think of a five-year-old who is resolved not to eat their vegetables and, oh, the battle that ensues there. Or maybe from a different perspective, you think of a, a cancer patient that is resolved to fight and praise God for that fight but the word resolve means firm determination and what I know is in the world in which we live we need resolve like never before. We need a firm determination in who we are and what we believe and praise God where we're going. Many of you may not recognize the name Desmond Doss But you may have seen the movie about him, Hacksaw Ridge. If you have not seen it, I would encourage you um, to watch it. It's a great film. I don't know how many creative liberties they probably took, um, probably many like every other movie, but it's a, a great depiction of his life. Doss was drafted into the U.S. Army in World War II, yet he was a conscientious objector, meaning that he interpreted the Bible in such a way that would not allow him to carry a gun. And uh, he loved his country, he wanted to serve, so he joined the squadron as a medic. And as depicted in the movie, his objections to to guns made him a target of all kinds of ridicule. Even um, they tried to court-martial him because of this. So all kind of ridicule, all kind of things that he had to go through. And then fast forward to him serving as a field medic in Okinawa when the Japanese pinned his unit down on top of a cliff and cut down nearly every man in his unit. Many of them were only wounded, but Doss knew that if they stayed wounded overnight, they would all die. But of course, high up on the cliff, the wounded men um, were not accessible to the rescue units because anybody who tried to come up the cliff would be gunned down by the Japanese. So Doss rigged up a a stretcher that could be lowered by a series of ropes and and pulleys to the ground below, and then all by himself, crawling under the sniper fire all night, he retrieved every wounded soldier in his unit one at a time and lowered them all down to safety. President Truman recognized Doss as one of the bravest warriors of World War II, claiming that 75 men owed their lives to his Courage, and then Truman did something that had never been done before. He awarded the Medal of Honor to a man who never picked up a gun. In fact, I read this week that six million men served in World War II, and only forty-three received the Medal of Honor, and he was one of them. Just think about that. Great things in our world are accomplished through courage and resolve. Now, many people, including many people within the, within the church, have great intentions. We have great intentions of what we want to do. The problem is oftentimes we either lack the resolve or the courage to do it. We lack the resolve to get it done. And for most of us, courage and resolve aren't things we're born with. We must learn them and we must grow in them as opportunities and even as circumstances are thrust upon us. But I pray today that God would make us a people of courage, that God would make us a people of resolve that we would know who we are, that we would know what we believe, that we would have a predetermined picture in our hearts of standing for God. Before we jump into Daniel 3, I want to summarize for us today Daniel 1 and 2. So Daniel 1 and 2, get in your mind, it occurs over 2,600 years ago in the Middle East. So God's people are living in the promised land And for 800 years, in the promised land, God's people were disobedient, they were defiant, and they were disregarding of God, to put it mildly. Now God, of course, was super patient with his people, enduring with them, but finally God's patience wore out. God's patience wore And just as God had previously promised in His Word, He allowed them, His people, to experience judgment and to experience justice through the invasion of the Babylonian army led by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's the last time I'm going to say his full name. From now on, he's going to be Nebi. So, just so we know, Nebi from here on out. So, Nebi plundered the temple. He took everything that belonged to the Lord from the Jerusalem temple, including the gold. He enslaved a number of God's people. These people were then forced, hear this, to make a 700-mile walk from Jerusalem to Babylon. Included in that number was a man named Daniel, who this book is named after, and three of his friends who came to be known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They arrived in Babylon, and because of their good looks, because of their high IQ, and because of their pedigree, meaning they came from a royal line, they were chosen for the honor of serving in the king's court. But first, don't miss this, they had to be emasculated. They had to be made eunuchs. In case you're unsure of that, please ask Brother Curtis after the service. (laughs) And he will be glad to explain all of that um, to, to you. Just don't ask me. So, But just consider that. Think about that for a second. These boys' vision for their life in their third grade class was not, I can assure you, go and serve an evil king in Babylon as eunuchs. That was not their life goal. I guarantee you that would not be in any one of their desires, their hopes, um, what they were thinking about for their future. Yet the question for them was this, would they worship and serve and serve God even when their plans didn't work out? And you know what? That is the question for us today as well. Will we still serve God when we don't get our way? And when we will we still worship him when our plans don't work out? When God doesn't give you what you want, will you still declare him to be worthy? Will you still worship him? And these young men, they remained loyal to God even under the most difficult of circumstances. They were renamed. They were brainwashed in the what I call the University of Babylon School of Demonology. And they were brainwashed there, yet they refused to worship anything other than God. Then we get to Daniel 2. And in Daniel 2, King Nebi has a dream. That just messes him up. So he calls all of his spiritual advisors to him. And he says, I want you to reveal to me the dream that I had and the interpretation. And they're like, no, no, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. But King Nebi knew that he was surrounded by a group of people. If he told them the dream, they would just make something up that made him feel good. And they'd move on. He said, no, I don't want that. I want you to tell me the dream and tell me what it means. And they said, well, none of us can do that. And he said, well, then you all need to die. But he gives them a death warrant so they go out to gather up all the king's spiritual advisors and they come to Daniel who would have been one of that group and they said come on you're gonna die and he said hang on what's going on explain to me the situation and they told him he said go to the king and ask for a moment for me to seek God so he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he says pray that God will allow me allow me to get the dream and to get the interpretation And God gave it to him, and he praised God. And then he stood before the king, and the king said, Do you have the interpretation? And Daniel said, King, what you are asking for, nobody can do. Nobody can do that. Nobody can give you your dream. But there is a God in heaven who can. And he laid it before the king. And, of course, the king promoted Daniel, promoted his three friends, and God was with them. And then we come to Daniel 3. And for some reason, Daniel is temporarily absent in, in Daniel chapter 3. There's been all kinds of speculation as to where he is or why, but I'm, I don't stand up here today and major in speculation. God left it out for a reason. He's not there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. And even in Daniel's absence, they remain faithful and exclusive in their worship of God. You now, When we're first introduced to these three men in Daniel 1, They're being enticed by the ways of Babylon, and they're being given new names. But when we meet them again in Daniel chapter 3, Nebi is no longer after their identity. He is now after their worship. He wants them to bow down and to worship him. And the question that they wrestled with are questions that we wrestle with as well. Will we remain steadfast to God in our convictions in the midst of a world in which we live that has no convictions? Listen, we live in a world that has zero convictions. Our world can't even tell you what the difference is between a man and a woman. I mean, come on. And and yet, we have to have convictions about where we are and about what God has done. And here's the problem today, especially with our teenagers, is we're being taught there's no convictions. There's no truth. There's nothing. And here's the difference. And here's the problem. This word says differently. This word says differently. Give me this word. Give me this word always. Give me this word only. May, may we understand that picture. Secondly, will we remain unwavering in our worship of God when our world tells us we can worship everything, including ourselves or especially ourselves? The world tells worship yourself. Do what's best for you always. But the Bible says, deny yourself. Worship him always. Will we remain firm in our commitments to God, even if the worst things, even when unwanted things, even when difficult things enter into our lives? Will we do that? So I want us to dive in this morning and behold a story that we're familiar with, but ultimately see another who was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to begin with verse 13 and read through the rest of the chapter. We're beginning there because, as I said, we mostly know the picture here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been told to bow. They haven't bowed, and here we go. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? Uh, Prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God therefore I make a decree any people nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way then the king promoted Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon let us pray father today we pray in the midst of our own battles in the midst of our own journeys Lord in the midst of our own fire fire that we must walk through, that you would show us today truths that we must see, truths that we can, Lord, not just believe in in those difficult times, God, but that we can take to the bank every day of our lives, of what you are doing, of how you are working, how you've always worked, and how you will always work on behalf of your people. God, speak to us today, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So, King Nebbi makes this great giant statue, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. The Bible says it's a golden image, a golden statue. Now, don't think, two different sides here. Don't think, of course, solid gold. Don't think that. That's not the picture. But also, don't think hollow. Like you know, most of us, if you were growing up, my Easter's were basically every Easter was kind of the same. I got this Easter bunny, chocolate Easter bunny. I would bite into it, and it was hollow. And it was like I felt gypped and I felt robbed in that moment. So don't think that, but don't let the other think. Um, The temple, you know, all the temple was, was wood and then covered with gold. So think about an image and then covered with pure gold. And many people have asked the question, well, where in the world does all this gold come from? And most scholars believe that all the gold of this image came from the gold in the temple at Jerusalem. So what King Nebi in this moment was doing is he was setting himself over the God of Israel. He was saying, There's none like me. You know, perhaps this image looked like a, a, a missile on a launching pad. Maybe it looked like the Washington Monument. I don't know, but I know it was, it couldn't be missed, and I know it was a, an image to be worshipped. And over and over and over again, this is called, the statue is called an image. Ten times in this chapter, we read the word image. And images were how kings marked their territory. So, think about this dogs mark their territory one way. Apparently, Old Testament kings would mark their territory this way. Meaning, as their empires grew, kings would place images of themselves in areas that had been conquered and on borders that were contested. So, they would set images of themselves. And the point was every time you saw the image, you were to be reminded of who is in control. Of who is in control. So Nebuchadnezzar's golden image was supposed to be the last word on who was ruling over the world. Yet for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this image was a first and second commandment issue. The first commandment, we will only worship God only, alone. That's it. None beside him. Second commandment, we will not bow down. We will not worship any other image. So for them, this was a first and second commandment issue. Think about us. Just a little side note here. Did you know that the Statue of Liberty we have is a depiction of the Roman goddess Libertas? we, We might not worship the Statue of Liberty in a traditional manner, but it's not a stretch to say that if we are not careful, we can begin to worship our freedom over our God. So much so that the Bible says, in your freedom don't serve yourself, serve others. Because the Bible knows that if you're given freedom oftentimes we turn inward with our freedom. In fact, there was a man named Richard Wormbrand who said that the greatest enemy of the church of Jesus Christ in the world is freedom. The greatest enemy is freedom. And I know some of you are thinking, well, who is that guy? He must be an idiot. Well, he was only a guy that was in jail for 14 years for Jesus and then spent the rest of his years in this ministry and creating this ministry called The Voice of the Martyrs that pointed and highlighted and shined a light on persecuted brothers and sisters all throughout the world. And he is saying that the greatest enemy is our desire for freedom because our desire for freedom cuts us off from our dependence on God. So we like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we we have idols that are presented to us again and again. And those idols say to us, bow the knee. Trust me completely. Anchor your life to me. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. Yet when the time came for for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow to the golden image, they remain standing. It's been estimated that there were 300,000 people from all over Babylon who had gathered together in this assembly. 300,000 people. And all of a sudden, the orchestra begins to play and 299,997 bow down and three remain standing. I don't know a whole lot, but I know this: if you're in a crowd of 300,000 and you're the only three not doing something, you're probably going to stand out. People are probably going to notice you. So very quickly, the enemies of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sprung into action. They go and they tattle to King Nebi, and they tell him that these three refuse to bow. And King Nebi, of course, he's in a furious rage. But there's probably some grace there because he knows these guys. He knows who they are, so he calls them, and he gives them kind of a gracious chance, another opportunity to bow. And he says, I'm going to give you another opportunity. The orchestra's going to play again just for you. Bow down. But then he says, but if you don't, you're going to go in the fiery furnace, and he asks this question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, what he was saying is if you are so foolish as to refuse my offer, who's going to save you? And Nebuchadnezzar's question is really the question of the ages. Who is a God who will save us? Who is the God who will save us? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so glad that he asked. Because this was not a question that they had to answer on the spur of the moment. This was a question that had been resolved in their hearts long ago. Long ago, they had been resolved in their hearts, if challenged, to worship, to worship the gods of this world and be praised or to worship the God of Israel. Israel and be burned to a crisp. In their hearts, they had said, "We'll worship God. We will. We will worship God." They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to pray about it. They didn't have to fast their way through it. They didn't go to Facebook and do an opinion poll and get everybody's opinions. They didn't do any of that. They had a predetermined plan, and here's what it was: We will obey God always. A predetermined plan. I will obey God always regardless of what it costs, regardless of what everybody else is doing, we will obey God, period. Oh, that that would be our predetermined plan and our lives of obedience to God. Here's where we're going this morning. God doesn't always keep us from the fire. He doesn't always keep us from the fire. Instead, He comes to us in our fires and He stands beside us Us, he will show his power in all of our lives in so many different ways throughout our lives. But we know his presence the most, his tangible presence in Christ. We know it the most when we're walking through the fire. We come to know him most when we're in the fire. Because the fires of our lives remind us very quickly where our protection, where our hope, and where our help and our salvation comes from. And it's not from us and we find out really quickly it's not from others. And we find out there's, there's only one. So in the remaining time that we have, and we don't have much, I want to lay before us three amazing and needed truths today. The first is this. God has not promised to keep us from the fire. Please hear that again. God has not promised to keep us from the fire. So in answering Nebbie's question... These young men answered, and I kind of summed it all up here on the screen. They said, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, be it known that we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. And just real quick, I want to just pause for a second, and let's just be honest in church, because again, church is always a good place to be honest. Every single one of us would probably, if we had to, if we were made to, we probably all have to admit that at one time or another, we have all wished that we would find a secret, obscure verse in the Bible that read something like this. Thus says the Lord, if you trust me, you will never again have to endure hardship. You will never again face adversity and pain. Instead, all of your days will overflow with ease and blessings. And oh yeah, all of your chocolate will be calorie free. I mean, some of you right now are going, that's in there? Like, like, that will be my verse tattooed on my chat. I got my verse But the the reality is, listen, we wish that was the case, yet the truth is God never made a promise to shield us from trials. In fact, think about this. Why would God, when God didn't shield his only son from trials? If God didn't shield him, why would we think he would shield us? Listen, in our day, we know that to be a Christ follower is hard. For there will come a time where in following Jesus, Jesus will ask you to do something that you don't want to do. Or Jesus, hear this, will lead you somewhere that you don't want to go. Even if it's in the fire. Yet his intention is not to harm you. His intention is to use our time in the the furnace for his purposes to burn things away. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but let me just say this. Just remember the only things that were burned away from these three men were things that belonged to Babylon. Nothing of themselves were burned. Only the things that that belonged to Babylon, meaning whatever bound them up was burned off. Or a different way to put it is this. God took them through the fire to burn away the things of this world. Maybe, just maybe, God has the same desire and the same purpose for you and for me in taking us through the fire now these men could have said um they could have reasoned in their hearts and said well what has God done to deserve our trust where was where was God when King Nebi came in and destroyed our homes, destroyed the temple took us away from all we've ever known If God didn't intervene then, how can we know God will intervene now? They could have thought that, but they didn't. Instead, they they believe the Lord is going to deliver us. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down. And please understand here, we must not presume upon the will of God. So don't think you know what God's will is, because when you do, then you and God doesn't do what you think he should, then you begin to get upset, and you act like a little child, and you throw a temper tantrum, all because you are mad at God for not doing what God never promised to do. And let me tell you what God never promised to do. God never promised to give you your way always. God never promised to meet every need that you think you have. God promised to meet every need that he knows you have. That is the amazing difference here. But they have—they essentially, these three men, essentially said to King Nebuchadnezzar Even if God doesn't deliver us, we'd rather die in the flames with just God than to live in a palace with just you. Let me say it again. They said, we'd rather die in the flames with just God than to live in a palace with just you. And please don't skip over that phrase there. But if not. Other versions of the Bible translate it this way, even if. Even if, God. Even if. Even if. Now, oftentimes when we walk through trials and difficulties or even walk through the fire, the two-word phrase on our lips or in our minds is not even if, it's what if. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if they do this? What if they don't do this? What if this? What if that? And we go through all of these things, yet there's a better way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not love God for what he did for them. They loved God because of who he was to them. Listen, they were not guaranteed Deliverance, but they were not held up or they were not stopped by what ifs either. In their hearts, they would trust God even if. They were satisfied knowing that even if the worst happened, God would be with them. Even if, even if, even if. Please hear this today. Replacing what if with even if is one of the most liberating exchanges you will ever make. Replacing what-ifs with even-ifs are the most liberating exchanges you will ever make because what you're doing is, in in giving away what-ifs, you are giving away irrational fears that paralyze you. Rational fears that keep you from moving forward, and instead you are replacing that with a trust in a God who will be with you always. Even if. Even if. Regardless of what that is. follow with me here. God didn't keep Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. He joined them in it. Later on in Daniel 6, God didn't keep Daniel from the lion's den, but he joined Daniel in it. In the book of Genesis, God didn't keep Joseph from Potiphar, from Egypt, and from prison, but he joined him there and in it. The proof in knowing that you are where God wants you to be in your unexpected and even unwanted places is not that God always keeps you from it, but God is always with you in it. He's always with you in it, which takes us to our second truth, which is this. God has promised to be be present with us in the fire. God has promised to be present with us in the fire. So in response to These three's rebellion, King Nebi he burned with rage and he ordered that the furnace be heated up seven times hotter than normal. Now, seven times is basically a a proverbial expression of as hot as possible. But it shows his absolute lack of, everything is kind of out of control in his his moment. He's irrational in this moment because here's the deal. If he wanted to truly punish these men, he would say, let's take down the temperature so that we can watch them burn longer. Instead, he initially guaranteed that they would just be burned up immediately. So he he ordered that strong men would bind their hands, throw them into the furnace. The furnace was so hot that these strong men died not inside the furnace, but outside the furnace. And then King Nebi and his idolatrous um, group of of men are sitting around like watching a football game, waiting to see what's going to happen. They're wanting to see this human barbecue, but that's not what happens. Instead, as you see on the screen, it says King Nebuchadnezzar declared, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? That means he could count. He was a king. He could count three. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. When Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fiery furnace, he saw four men, not three. He said the fourth was like a son of the gods. Or later on in verse 28, he said it's an angel. So not bad theology for a polytheist. Not bad theology for someone who didn't care about the Old Testament, didn't care about um, the God of Israel. However, we know better. We know the fourth person in the furnace was the one that we know as Emmanuel, God with us always. This isn't the New Testament. This isn't Matthew. This isn't Acts. This isn't Ephesians. This isn't Revelation. This is Daniel. But here's the amazing, beautiful picture in the Old Testament once again, here's Jesus. Here he is. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, he said, it is not difficult to know who that fourth person was. He was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form, perhaps the form he had when he appeared to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or in which he wrestled with Jacob beside the brook Jabok. But hear this. It is a vivid portrayal of the fact that God stands with his people in their troubles. God stands with you in your troubles. Let me say it again. God stands with you in your troubles. Before the Lord delivered these men out of the fire, he chose to be with them in the fire. For our Savior does not always remove troubles from us, but he remains active in those troubles nonetheless. The reason we can have confidence in the midst of fire, the reason we can have confidence in the midst of affliction is that we trust in the presence of God with us and it gives us encouragement, peace, hope, and joy no matter what comes into our lives. See, God chose and ultimately showed that His desire was not to rescue them from the fire. His desire was to rescue them, hear this, through the fire. Just imagine these men's amazement. There there had to be a point in their lives Maybe when, as they're, they're being bound up, going, Well, I guess God's not going to rescue us. I guess God's going to rescue us in a different way. And they, they're being led up to the furnace and they see these men that are dying, and yet they're pushed into the fire and they're probably going, Oh, oh, it's hot. And they're going, No, it, hang on, it's not hot. What? And then they realize we're not bound. And they look around and they're, We're not dead. And then the most beautiful thing, we're not alone. We're not alone. For there was a fourth in the fire with them. I don't know what they talked about, I don't know what they did when they walked around. All I know is whatever was going on got the attention of a pagan king. And it was a beautiful picture of who our God is to us. Listen, God has not promised to spare us from trials, but he has promised to be with us during them. Be with us during all of them. Listen, when our Lord carries us through adversities, whether through miraculous means or whether just through ordinary everyday means, his presence with us will be undeniable. Maybe we can't see it in the moment, but there will come a time where we'll look back and we'll say, there's no way I got through that apart from Jesus. There's no way, there's no way I could have made it through that apart from him. And then we began to really dissect it and we say, not only was he with me, he carried me, he held me, he, he uphold me, he carried me, the steps that I could not walk. The thi- when, when I thought the tunnel was closing in, there was no light, he kept going. And there came a moment where I saw light and it was the other end and Praise be to God, he brought me through it, for he was with me in it. The God who brings us through it does so because he's in it. He's in it. So God has promised to be present with us in the fire. But then lastly, lastly is this, God will draw us to Jesus through the fire. God will draw us to Jesus through the fire. Again, if you and I were given a test today, and that test was just one question with two answers, and the answer was this. I choose with my life to A, go through the fire, or B, never go through the fire, I would guess there would probably be 100% of us, if we were to be honest, go B. I would rather never go through the fire. I'd rather never suffer, I'd rather never have difficulty, I'd rather never have those things. But in doing that, we would be missing a very important piece of the puzzle of what God is doing through those things. Meaning, through every difficulty, God is drawing us closer to Jesus. For us to cut those things out of our lives is to miss what God is doing in and through them. This whole picture is not about a God who is distantly watching, wondering what we're going to do. That's not the picture here. The gospel is not about a distant, far off, aloof God, but about a God who entered into our world, who stood with us, and praise God, died for us. That's the gospel. And while he died on the cross, hear this, no one stood with him, no one walked with him when he suffered on our behalf. One pastor described the whole life of Jesus this way. His whole life for him was like walking in a furnace. His whole life, walking in a furnace. And just listen to the promise of God that's on the screen here. I love this promise. This was our verse of the week, Isaiah 43.2. Just hear it. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, you shall, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Child of God, what a promise. What a promise. What a promise from our God. And let me say this and don't miss this. That promise has been true for every situation in all of history except for one. There was one situation where someone went through the fire, or waters, and they overwhelmed. And someone went through the fire, and they were burned apart from his presence, and that is at the cross. Jesus Christ, he walked through the fire alone. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But don't miss it, brothers and sisters. Jesus walked through the fire at the cross alone so that you and I will never have to walk alone. He walked through the alone so we'll never have to walk through anything alone. Anything. We will never walk through anything in our lives apart from him. And notice that Jesus didn't manifest himself except for inside the furnace. It wasn't outside, it was inside the furnace at the very moment when these men needed him the most. Brothers and sisters, has that not been your experience that in in, in the fires of life we have experienced the presence of Jesus most? That we have experienced his presence more intimately in the difficulties, in the fires Listen, so often we go through days and maybe even weeks without any consciousness of the Lord's presence in our lives. But when trouble comes, when the flame begins to get hot around us, when our life crumbles in within us, then we discover that Jesus has been by our side the entire time. It's in the fires that we experience the presence of Jesus More powerfully. Listen, he's there. He's always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But he makes his presence known more fully in the fires. Guess why? Because we're looking for him there. Because we want him there. Because we need him there. And when we need him there, we call upon him and we realize he is there. Are you in the furnace today? If you are, be encouraged Not because you're in the furnace. Be encouraged that you're not alone. You're not alone. Thinking back on this promise of Isaiah 43.2, if the promise is that fires won't burn us, then what will they do? If fires won't burn us, then what's the benefit of going through the fires? And someone has said this, God is a refiner, and that makes all the difference. Because the fires that we face then become refiners' fire. Meaning a refiner's fire does not destroy aimlessly like a forest fire. A refiner's fire does not consume completely like a fire in an incinerator. A refiner's fire refines. It purifies. It burns away all impurities. What a tremendous word of hope for us. The furnace of affliction that we go through is always for refinement. It's never for destruction. I think we need to hear that today. God does not want to destroy you. God wants to purify you. He wants to purify you as you walk through the fire. Or to put it a different way, just like these three Hebrew boys going through the fire burns off of us what belongs to the world. So God will allow us to go through the fire so that the things of this world that have attached themselves to us will be burned off. And God will purify us through it. If you find yourself today walking through the fire, take heart, you will not be consumed and you will not be alone. He will be with you. He, he is with you even now. I want to end today with the words of Charles Spurgeon who, who says this, you must. Let me say those two words again. You must. One more time. You must. Go in to the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. The richest thought that a Christian perhaps can live on is this, that Christ is in the furnace with him. When you suffer, Christ suffers. Don't miss this today. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where people go all over to churches, all all places, um, chasing what's called... A gospel of escapism. You go and a pastor tells you, if you come to Jesus, bad things won't happen to you. If you come to Jesus, listen, every time you look at your bank account, there'll be numbers added to it. If you you go to to the doctor, even though it says cancer, all of a sudden it will say, nope, we were wrong. You're going to live forever. And we're like, sign me up for all of that. We want a gospel of escapism, escape from all the problems, the concerns, the cares of this world. But let me tell you this, if God were to give you all of that, you wouldn't need him. You wouldn't need him. If God gave you everything you wanted, guess what? You wouldn't thank God. You wouldn't pray to God. In fact, you would just say, I'm God and things couldn't be better. God allows us to go through difficulties so that we come to understand we're not God and we need him. Thank God for the trials. Thank God for the difficulties as you walk through them. And thank God that He is with you, taking you through them all. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the, the band forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration continue to, to worship the Lord together. And we're going to make a... It's kind of weird how we ended We ended the first service by singing Wherever He Leads I Go. That's a little different. We talk about going through the fire and then we say Wherever He Leads I Go, but In just a second, we're about to sing, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, No Turning Back. It's the same deal. It's the same picture. Oh, today I pray that we could sing that with a resolve in our lives that we're going to follow Him. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. We praise you. We rejoice, God, in you. And we want to resolve in this holy moment, God, that we want you. And Lord, we want to praise you that in every moment, especially the dark and fiery moments, Lord, that we have you, that you are with us. Whether we see it in that moment or not, God, the reason that we're making our way through it is because of you. Just show us today, God, again, afresh and new how much we need you, that we can do nothing apart from you. And God, in needing you, Lord, help us to want you, to want you in every part of our lives, God open our lives, God, to you in every area. To not withhold areas from you, but open all of our, our lives to you. Father, have your way. Do a work, God, we pray. In Jesus' name,